We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall never surrender until in God's good time, the new world with all its power and might steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of people. In times of universal deceit, truth is the only rebellion left. The topic for today's show is fundamentalism versus evangelicalism. What's the difference? And I'm going to discuss this within the concept of chronological snobbery. And an article written by John Stone Street in Breakpoint where he asks this question, Should Christians be repenting of their elitism? I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion. Good morning and welcome to The Rebellion. Thank you for listening into the show. I said that the topic for today is fundamentalism versus evangelicalism. What's the difference? Can we define these terms? Are you a fundamentalist, or are you an evangelical, or are you a Protestant? Are you a non-denominational person? Or are you Orthodox or Catholic? Where does the word fundamentalism come into play as we talk about the history of the church and the labels that we use to define ourselves? This is an important topic. And I, when I ask you to define those terms or to think about those terms, I don't want you to do it in the context of contemporary definitions that have been put upon those two words, fundamentalism versus evangelicalism, or Orthodox, or traditional Christian, Protestant, Catholic, whatever. I don't want you to be thinking in those terms. I want you to be thinking historically. So try to set aside the pejorative terms that have been put upon you, the definitions that have been placed upon fundamentalism, for example, versus evangelicalism. I want you to think about the history of what these words mean, and I'm going to go back and spend a little bit of time explaining that. I'm going to do it in the context of an article written for Breakpoint by John Stone Street. It's titled, Repenting of Elitism and Chronological Snobbery. So after we take a break, I'm going to go through that article, very brief one, written by John Stone Street, where he's asking this question. Are Christians chronological snobs? Is your church guilty of chronological snobbery? Are you guilty of the same? Should we be repenting of that and the elitism that comes with that. Essentially, Stone Street is asking this question. Are you guilty? Am I guilty? Is your church guilty of thinking that all of your new ideas are the best ideas? Or is there some history we should be considering when we debate the definition of Orthodox Christianity, true Christianity, historical Christianity, biblical Christianity? And is there some value in recovering the definition, the original definition, and purpose of fundamentalism. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion. Let's take a break, and when I get back, we'll dig into this one. I'll be right back in a couple minutes. 
In 1978, George and Kate Tedford set out to protect Oklahoma businesses better. Today, their son and our CEO, Mark Tedford, is excited to carry on his family's legacy. Professional liability, compliance, property, workers' comp, health and life. Tedford Insurance's dedicated team gives you access to the nation's largest insurance providers, negotiates the best rates, and protects their own legacy like no one else. Call 918-299-2345 or tedfordinsurance.com. The Patriot Auto Group, locally owned and operated. The Patriot family of dealerships takes great pride in supporting the communities we serve throughout the great state of Oklahoma. The Patriot Auto Group's charitable work has been recognized throughout Oklahoma. Whether it's visiting one of our local dealerships or simply shopping and buying online with our doorstep delivery, the Patriot Auto Group takes the stress out of buying a new or used vehicle. And every purchase comes with our exclusive peace of mind, Patriot Pledge. You get engines for life, plus one-year maintenance, and 10 full years of roadside assistance, plus so much more. Sure, we can sell you a car, but supporting our community and lending a hand to our neighbors in need? Sold. The Patriot Auto Group. Proud Oklahomans in the communities we serve. Okay, welcome back to The Rebellion. All right, what I'm going to do for the rest of the show here is I'm going to dig into Stone Street's article for Breakpoint. Again, it's titled Repenting of Elitism and Chronological Snobbery. I'm going to do that, but then I'm going to wrap up the show by giving you a definition, a historical definition of what it means to be a fundamentalist. So as you're listening right now, don't uh, be guilty of a knee-jerk reaction. Don't define the terms in a contemporary way. Dig back into the historical definition of the movement. Why do we have a difference today between evangelicals and fundamentalists? Why is there even a difference? Well, there is an answer. There's a historical answer, and it goes back to the early 1900s, when there was a split between fundamentalists and evangelicals. And there's a reason for that split. There was a split between fundamentalists and mainline Protestants. There's a reason for that split. It actually goes back several hundred years even before that when Martin Luther first coined the term evangelical. Did you know that's where it comes from? And that's part of the Reformation movement and Luther's sola scriptura movement. So there were reasons for the fundamentalist-modernist split, and that goes back to the early 1900s. I'll get into that. Don't have a lot of time, but I'll dig into that somewhat as we wrap up the show. But let's go to this article by Stone Street. He writes this, in a recent Twitter thread by Michael Clary, an evangelical pastor based in Cincinnati, he addressed an unhelpful attitude pervasive among Christians today. And Stone Street says this, I confess it's an attitude of which I've been guilty, and apparently so has Clary. In Clary's words, he says this, There once was a certain kind of evangelical Christian I felt free to make fun of. Conservative, uneducated, backwoods fundies, who still read the King James Version. They lacked the theological sophistication and cultural insight I had acquired while doing campus ministry and studying at seminary. This is Cleary discussing his attitude toward fundies, backwoods, uneducated, conservative Christians who read their King James Bible. They were unsophisticated. They lacked culture. You know, the kind of 
the kind of things that I had acquired, the cultural insight and education that I had acquired while I was studying in seminary. This is Cleary and Stone Street admitting and repenting of that attitude. Uh, back to Stone Street. I would not have admitted this at the time, but deep down inside, I felt superior to my hometown people and their country religion. My ministry success was at least partly driven by a desire to separate myself from them and prove that I'm not one of those fundamentalist Christians, those fundies. But then it began to dawn on me, he goes on and says, I was standing on the shoulders of giants. My grandfather was one of those country preachers, one of those fundamentalists, one of those fundies. My great-grandfather was the same way. He only received a third-grade education. He planted a church deep in the hills of West Virginia and built a church building for it on his own property. And he stayed true to the Lord and his calling for 80 years. And here I was, three or four years into my new church plan, attracting a few hundred people, feeling like I had accomplished something, feeling superior to men like my grandfather and great-grandfather. So I repented. I repented of my arrogance. I repented of looking down on faithful, older Christians who had passed on a great legacy to me. Now, Stone Street says this, I share all these things because my arrogance was cultivated in an evangelical subculture that produces a spirit of what? Listen to this, elitism. What I have learned is that subculture, that subculture is actually sub-Christian. That's a very key sentence right now. Stone Street is saying, I share all these things because my arrogance was cultivated in an evangelical subculture that produced a spirit of elitism, chronological arrogance. And what I've learned is that that subculture of arrogance is actually sub-Christian. Listen to this paragraph. In a world in which everyone and everything is superficially connected online, where there are an estimated 30 billion more cameras than people, and where influencer is an actual job title, style is easily confused with substance and fame for faithfulness. It's one of the many, and there are many, forms of what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. Theologian J.I. Packer described it as the assumption that the newer is the truer, and only what is recent is decent, and every shift of ground is a step forward, and every last word must be hailed as the last word on its subject. Quote, unquote. That's an excellent quote. I'm going to read it again. This is from J.I. Packer, a hero of the faith. Okay, what is chronological snobbery? C.S. Lewis coined these terms as far as we know. It's this arrogance of thinking that the new ideas are better than all the old. And I would argue that evangelicals in particular are so guilty of this. I've thanked my Catholic friends many a time for guarding the history of the church, for hanging on to the traditions of the church. Those teachings that are 2,000 years old, they hold tenaciously. The Orthodox, likewise, hold tenaciously to the history and they don't throw all of that out just because somebody comes up with a new idea that's five minutes old. They don't throw out 2,000 years of ideas that have, that have stood the test of time. The chronological snobbery of the evangelical church is frankly quite palpable. And that's what this article is about that Stone Street is writing right now. Back to C.S. Lewis, what he called chronological snobbery and J.I. Packer's definition of that. 
Packer says this of chronological snobbery. It's the newer is the truer, and only what is recent is decent, and every shift of ground is a step forward, and every last word must be hailed as the last word, the best word on its subject. Close quote. Now, just digest that for a second. Is your church guilty of that? Is your big box church guilty of that? Is your denomination guilty of that? Are you guilty of that? Am I guilty of that? Thinking that our ideas are better than grandpas and grandmas. You know, as I've said several times on this show, maybe grandma and grandpa actually knew something. It's the Wesleyan quadrilateral. It's one of the four components of the worldview through which I think we should be sifting all ideas of our time. You know, history, tradition, maybe grandma and grandpa actually knew something. The old ideas that have stood the test of time may be the best ideas. They've been around a while for good reason. They've been challenged over and over again, and they're still there. It's called the wisdom of the ages. That's one of the components of the quadrilateral. All right, so back to this article by Stone Street. In Pastor Clary's case, seminary credentials and missiological savvy replaced the hard-won wisdom of faithful mentors and elders. In mind, says Stone Street, theological study brought a confidence that in many ways became an arrogance. Many others have succumbed to the increased cultural pressures of our age, embarrassed by moral convictions that were considered non-negotiable throughout church history. The eye-rolling, head-shaking, and moral grandstanding soon followed. Is so true, so true. Don't you see that in our churches today? The eye-rolling, the head-shaking, the moral grandstanding of the social justice warriors— you know, you're holding to those old moral traditions. Uh, you believe the same stuff that great-grandpa believed when it comes to fill-in-the-blank. Well, if what great-grandpa believed and preached and taught and walked was grounded in Scripture, maybe it was right and just and true, maybe even more so than your newfangled ideas, your chronologically arrogant thinking that you're embracing today. That's what Stone Street is bringing into play right now in his critique. Our confidence has become arrogance, and we're succumbing to the increased pressure of our time, of our cultural age, where we're actually embarrassed by the biblically grounded moral convictions of our elders. Stone Street goes on and says this, Perhaps in God's grace, the decline in church attendance and cultural influence will lead us to repent, repent of our chronological snobbery, perhaps We'll learn like Pastor Clary, says Stone Street, to be grateful for men and women who faithfully followed Christ and showed us how to do the same, how to follow Christ biblically. To be clear, says Stone Street, Christians should never turn off their brains and choose tradition over truth. Rejecting in-depth training and formation in Scripture and theological truths or stubbornly refusing any new kind of change is wrong. That's thoughtless. As uh, he, he quotes Shane Morris, a colleague of Stone Street's, where he warns that we should beware of reverse chronological snobbery too. In other words, what Stone Street's saying here is he's qualifying his challenge to you and me. We shouldn't turn off our brains We shouldn't accept the old just because it's old, because that would be reverse chronological snobbery. In other words, think. You've got a brain. Use it. 
History, tradition, reason, and scripture, the quadrilateral. History, yes, the old ideas are around for a reason. Maybe grandma and grandpa knew something. But reason, you've got a brain, use it. Don't turn off your brain. Don't be guilty of reverse chronological snobbery and refusing to accept critique, challenges, questions, new archaeological discoveries, uh, the, the teaching of those people that are trying to go back to the original meaning of the, the scriptures that have been handed on to us. Don't grab a hold of the King James Version and say that it's the only true translation when we know, if you use your brain, that the King James Version is not a direct translation from the, from the most ancient documents that we have. There are better translations. The ESV, for example, English, English Standard Version, is a more accurate translation. Now, I'm not saying the King James is bad. In fact, the beauty of Old English is something that we should embrace. The poetry there is good. But don't turn off your brain and say, well, it's a better translation than the ESV. It's just not. But that's, that's not contemporary arrogance. That's just using your brain and thinking. Back to, back to uh, Stone Street's article here. So don't turn off your brain. Don't be guilty of reverse chronological snobbery. And then he says this, in his book, Surprised by Joy, C.S. Lewis rightly suggests that we ought not judge something or someone based on its newness or oldest at all. Instead, Lewis writes, you must find out why it went out of date. Was it ever refuted, or did it merely die away as fashions do? If the later, says Lewis, this tells us nothing about its truth or falsehood. Close quote. Now let's let's wrestle with that quote a little bit right now. Uh, Surprised by Joy, C.S. Lewis. Now this is his spiritual autobiography, autobiography, if you will. It's, it's the story of Lewis's conversion and how he was surprised by joy. This, this unexplainable passion for something beautiful, something bigger, and how you're surprised by the overwhelming feel of purpose and meaning. As you stare and look at the mountains, as you look at a sunset, as you hold a newborn baby, we've all had these moments where you're surprised by this euphoria, this joy of purpose, something that only human beings feel. It's this acknowledgement that you yearn for something more, that this isn't the end of it, that it can't just be this closed box existence of materialism, as if you're nothing but an evolved animal. Uh, the, the here and now is all that matters. That, that physical pleasure and satiation is all you exist for. No, there's something more. And Lewis is arguing that if you're surprised by that joy, that yearning for something bigger and better and beautiful and more, this acknowledgement that a painting just captures your soul or a a song, music, inspires you and makes you feel better. These moments are moments of proof that you're the Imago Dei, that you're made in the image of God and that you're designed for eternity. Okay, so in that book where Lewis talks about being surprised by the imprint of God upon your soul, by God's thumbprint on your mind and your heart, Lewis says this, that we ought not judge something or someone based on its newness or oldness at all, but instead 
you must find out why the idea went out of date. Was it ever refuted, or did it merely die away as fashions do? And if it was the later, if it just died away like a fashion does without ever being refuted, that idea shouldn't be discarded. Because if that's the case, if it died away as a fashion rather than through refutation, this tells us nothing about its truth or falsehood. So techniques, styles, even church movements come and go, but those whom Christ saves, he sustains. This is Stone Street and Pastor Clary right now in the conclusion of this article. Techniques and styles and movements come and go. But Christianity, saving Christianity, true Christianity, as defined in Scripture, sustains. An elitist Christianity cannot survive the rigors of hard discipleship. But our grandparents and great-grandparents did. So maybe they had something, you think? Maybe they had something. So... This is the article that caught my attention, and it made me think of the difference between evangelicalism and fundamentalism. You know, I actually wrote about this in my dissertation back at Michigan State University some years ago. I was, my topic was the definition of evangelical Christianity within organizations like colleges. What is the definition, and are we being true to that definition when we tell somebody that we are an evangelical Christian college, or an evangelical church, or when we tell someone who asks us, you know, what's the reason for your belief? Why do you go to church? Why do you behave the way you behave? Why do you hold the values that you hold? Why are you pro-life? Why are you pro-freedom? Why are you pro-traditional sexuality and sexual mores? Why are you free enterprise? You know, if people ask me that, I'd say, well, it's because I I believe in the evangel, the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. I believe in human freedom. I believe in personal responsibility and culpability. I believe in objective morality and objective standards. I believe in a measuring rod outside of those things being measured, or we can do no measuring. Without these things, then our culture collapses, and it's going to be a bloodbath. It's going to be power rather than principles. And we're seeing that unfolding in our culture right now. If you don't have any common glue, if you don't have a cultivated row, rows that are common across the field, if the field hasn't been cultivated in a commonality, a unity, parallel rows, if it's just chaos, then the stuff you plant isn't going to grow properly. You're going to not have culture. You get the distinction there between cultivate and culture. The, that the that the culture is it comes out of that agrarian that agricultural conversation of what it means to have a prepared field that can actually grow a predictable product that's what a culture is if you and I don't mean this in terms of false religion I've talked about it before but if you don't have a cult you don't have a culture if you don't have a common faith you know, common rows unity, predictability. We're all walking in the same direction. Without a common faith, without a cult, you've got chaos. So culture implies that commonality, that common faith, those commonly held beliefs. We don't have that anymore. We celebrate plural, pluralism, excuse me. We celebrate pluralism 
at the expense of culture. And culture requires commonality, a cult, not a false religion. That's not what I mean. I want you to hear me on that. Uh, a true religion, it, it requires truth. It requires predictable, understandable, useful, historical truth. And that's, that's what I talked about in my dissertation some 30 years ago at Michigan State University. I wanted to know, what do people think evangelical means when we say we're evangelical? Well, it goes back to the modernist fundamentalist debate. Okay, I've only got a few minutes left. But the modernist and fundamentalist debate took place in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And this was a, a debate between those who held to the fundamentals of the faith and those that were enamored by modernism. Specifically at the time, it was radical Darwinism and social justice. There were people that felt themselves to be smarter than everybody else. They, they were the folks that were involved in modern criticism. Oh, they said they were still Christian, but they believed that the Bible was a book that told about man's relationship with God rather than being a book of God's revelation to man. All right, so the Bible wasn't inerrant as a revelation of God to man so that we had to understand it and obey it to the letter. No, that's what, not what the Bible was. It's, it's, a, it's a good book talking about man's relationship with God, but it's not an inerrant revelation to man. There's a huge difference here. There was a theologian by the name of Friedrich Schleimacher that led this movement. Well, so you had radical Darwinism, and then you had Schleiermacher's higher criticism, and out of this came the evangelicals. Uh, now, there was a good reason for the evangelicals at that time, because they didn't want to be thoughtless. They wanted to use their brains. So they thought that some of the, some of the older Christians were not engaging some of the new ideas in a critical fashion. These early evangelicals didn't believe in embracing all the new ideas, but they did believe that we should be educated and be able to engage those ideas rather than just dismiss them with no thought. And I agree with that. We need to understand every idea that's presented before us. We need to understand every lie of our culture better than those who embrace the lies. So that's why I call myself an evangelical, because I do believe in thoughtful rather than thoughtless Christianity. But... We should not be chronological snobs. <clears throat> Excuse me. We cannot just discard the fundamentals of the faith while we embrace our evangelical critique. There are basic fundamentals, and the fundamentals of the early fundamentalists should be irrefutable. They talk about the deity of Jesus Christ, the inerrancy of Scripture, salvation only through Jesus Christ, his death, his resurrection, and his imminent return. These are the fundamentals that the fundamentalists held on to. In fact, that's where the word came from. They came up with the fundamentals of the faith, and they said, no, we can't discard the fundamentals as we engage the new ideas. The fundamentals must serve as the foundation for our Christianity as we engage, debate, radical Darwinism. Are we nothing but the product of the primordial ooze? Are we different than the dog, the pig, the cat, the cow, or the amoeba? Or are we really no 
different? Is there no moral significance or difference between us and all these other things that exist around us? Do we have the imprint of God on our heart uniquely or not? The fundamentals of the faith argued that radical Darwinism is an error because it denies the creative act of God. It denies the inerrancy of Scripture. It denies the deity of Jesus Christ. It denies the miracles, the death, the resurrection, uh, the, perhaps the most salvific of all miracles, obviously. It denies those as being historical facts. So are you a fundamentalist? Well, if you hold on to those fundamentals, then arguably you are. And I would challenge that if you don't hold on to those fundamentals, how can you claim to be an orthodox historical Christian? Just because some new scholar came out yesterday and challenged that stuff and ignores the test of time, the lessons of history, the veracity of Scripture, and disregards and disrespects grandma and grandpa and great-grandma, great-grandma, grandpa, disrespecting the teachings of our elders is not necessarily wise. In fact, it could be foolish and often is. So fundamentalism versus evangelicalism, Protestant versus, versus Orthodox, what are you? Well, I would hope that you recognize the value of going back and reading about the fundamentals, why your great-grandfather held on to those tenaciously. And maybe it wasn't as thoughtless as you thought. Maybe he wasn't a back woods buffoon after all. Maybe he was one of the wisest men God ever put in your path. I'm Dr. Everett Piper and this is The Rebellion.